Great. Well, we'll start with one of the uh, questions which has been most voted for uh, by the online audience, uh, and then we'll go to a live question uh, after that. If you do have a live question, feel free uh, to head just to the microphone here uh, in the middle of the room. So the first question for you both, uh, feel free to answer whoever would like to. American Christianity seems like a faith dulled by affluence and comfort. Is it possible for us in the U.S. to experience God in a similar way to the other stories that we heard today? And how could we do that? Well, I'm sure Francis would want to add to with his, a lot of his travel. I think there are two ways to look at it, Vince. Uh, that would be my initial take, as I've just heard the question. Uh, on the one hand, it's easy to come down hard, you know, on something like this. It's sort of a easy game and an easy target. But uh, there are two sides to that. The fact of the matter is, it is easy to get uh, too comfortable in what we have. It's not just because it's American Christianity, but it's the way we live in America. Uh, things are more accessible and actually, in many ways, more affordable. Uh, talking about restaurants, talking about automobiles, talking about homes and uh, accessibility to all of the gadgets of our time. Yes, it is possible, but that's not just in America. That's possible in many parts of Europe as well. Uh, so it's easy to start climbing up the wrong tree and looking for the fruit on that tree and thinking you have all that you need. Uh, let me switch the metaphor a bit first and then get back to this. On the other hand, very few parts of the world today would really have heard the gospel the way they have it weren't for American generosity as well. Uh, that's really an often forgotten thing. Uh, I'm one of those who was blessed by the giving in Canada and the United States. I came to know the Lord in India but there were missionaries from Canada and the United States there who reached my parents, who reached us. And that's because the people here have grown up with an attitude of giving. That's one of America's greatest gifts. Uh, in fact, sometimes a gift that's almost abused. We don't even think to what it is we are giving. We just see a need and start giving without demanding accountability at the same time. So it's been a generous heart. If you look at the work, for example, in Indochina, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, Laos, and all of those countries where the missionaries went from here, again from North America, the seeds that were sown. I was in Vietnam in, in March in Ho Chi Minh City, and Margie and I, that was the first time she was there. I was there in the 70s during the war, and there was a gentleman showing us around, and he was talking about how tough life is for some in the city, how all right it is for the others. And so I looked at him and I said, are you familiar with Tin Lan? Tin Lan, literally, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly with the uh, kind of accents they have and so on, uh, but uh, it means good news. And uh, I belong to the Christian Mission Alliance and the CNMA churches that were called Tin Lan. They were the major evangelical Protestant church of Vietnam. So I just said to him, are you familiar with Tin Lan? And he looked at me rather shocked. He said, my grandfather used to attend a Tin Lan church. My father attended, and I grew up in a Tin Lan church. Uh, just a person out of the blue, you know. And uh, there are graves in Vietnam 
uh, because of American missionaries. I've seen them on the, on the DMZ in Yilin, Guangtri, and so on. Uh, they were the ones that were the last ones to leave. Uh, they were airlifted out of the embassy there. The work in Cambodia, uh, great work, and then ca Canadian missionaries as well. So they have done a lot across the decades. Our role may be changing now. Our role may not be so much in uh, doing evangelism as enabling evangelism, because there are a lot of fine crop of nationals and other possibilities. So yes, it is possible for us to get too comfortable, but I also want to say a big thank you for the way this country has supported the cause of world missions all over the globe, and we cannot gainsay that side of it. Uh, also great prayer warriors here. Wherever I go, I see people who say, we're praying for you. Uh, so it could become an easy target to say yes, but the risk is there, always there, whenever you have uh, plentiful uh, in supply. We just have to take it as from the hand of God and not see it as a license to uh, get free of any responsibility. Yeah, I think of, uh, I think it's Deuteronomy 8, when, uh, you know, God's telling you, you're going to go into this land, you're going to get all this stuff, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to start enjoying it, then after a period of time, you're going to start thinking that you earned it, and you did this for yourself, and you're going to forget your need for me. You're just going to forget about, there, there's something about, it's not, it, I can't say it's our fault. I mean, we live in this country, and, and there are just a lot of comforts that come our way, and I think scripture warns against some of those riches and how they can deaden you and place your heart to where suddenly you treasure your, your life here more than the one to come. I, I mean, honestly, when our, our brothers from Nigeria were just speaking up here, Part of my concern was like, gosh, you live such an amazing, amazing life, what God's done through. I, I almost was fearful of them being in a position like this, sitting in an air-conditioned room with their suits on, answering questions, being applauded, because it's, it's not the world you come from. And I go, oh, Lord, please don't let this weaken, because it can. And so I prayed for you, brothers, going, please, please, Lord, keep that passion. We need that. And, and there is something about our culture that, that can soften us. We know that. Um, and yet, what can we do about it? Does that mean we just resolve and go, well, I live in America. We can only go so far in our walk with the Lord because we're not persecuted. Absolutely not. But, but there are things we need to do, just even in our own prayer lives, when Scripture says, you know, to, to be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers, that, that thought of being clear-minded rather than filling your mind with, with mindless uh, texts and Facebook posts and videos and movies, and so where it's time to pray, and we have all these comforts and all these things we can enjoy, and now it's time to pray and to be sober-minded. We're like, our mind is going everywhere, and we lose touch with reality, and that's, that's the problem. That's what keeps us from some of this depth and this time with the Lord, I see it. I feel it slipping away. And again, it's, it's, uh, I, I love what you said about thinking about everything the country has done in, in a good way. Um, and I, I personally, too, I want to 
apologize if I ever come across like I'm just mad, you know, like, gosh, we're so messed up. But, and, <laughs> but it's hard sometimes when you go to other countries and, and what I've learned is, okay, we've been privileged to see a lot of that um, and meet people, saints, dear saints around the world that have suffered so much for the gospel that it just gets us so excited to be, to want to be like them. And not everyone has that privilege to see that and experience that and to feel their pain and see their intimacy with Christ. And, uh, and so sometimes in coming back here, I just want to let people know what is possible. And I really believe it is possible here. It's, but uh, but our, our comforts and our riches really do fight against us in, in our, our quest for that. Thank you guys so much. That's, uh, if that's mad, you're, you're welcome to get mad at me anytime. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a t-shirt which, uh, which Robbie's uh, daughter bought for me, actually. Oh, no, it was Margie. It was Robbie's wife, Margie, bought for me. And it says, I'm not yelling, I'm just Italian. Uh, <laughs> so that's, uh, you know what I like about Francis? His passion makes me feel like I'm sliding into oblivion. <laughs> He's like a conductor and the whole world is his orchestra. Love that. Absolutely love it. I used to be like that. Then I got older. <laughs> yeah, we, can I say one more thing on that? Just so that we don't lose the ideals for all of us. There are parts of the world that don't have too much, Vince, as you well know, and we travel. But they have their own issues. They really have their own issues. There are so many pockets of division in some parts of the world and the church. They're so divided. Everybody, you know, they say when the tide is low, every shrimp has its own puddle. And uh, you've got all these little puddles all over the place. Uh, and uh, we are so divided. Maybe the greatest need for the hour is that we be one in our belief and in our passion and in our propagation. Yes. The parts of the world you go, you go to the Middle East. I mean, the tensions within the Christian community there are pretty bad. All little pockets of uh, critiques and criticisms and all of that. Uh, Satan works in different ways. You know, here he may use our well-being in order to mitigate the force of the gospel. There he may use that sense of autonomy to drive a wedge into somebody else. Uh, the enemy of our souls is pretty shrewd and knows what to use with which to attack a local setting of the gospel. Yep. Great. Thanks, you, thanks to you both. Uh, do we have a live question that we can go to here? Okay, anyone who has a live question? Oh, great, this is coming up. Yeah, go, yeah, we'll do one more question here, but go ahead, and, go ahead and talk with Ruth. And anyone else who has a live question, you can just head right here and talk with, walk with Ruth, and we'll, we'll get to those questions soon. One more from uh, the pigeonhole guys. Um, this question says, the Gospel of John says we will be known by our love, yet our culture has redefined love to be something we can't tolerate. How do we discuss the definition of love with love? And that may be uh, the challenge of the hour for us. Because we have, uh, you know, uh, our persecution here is of a different kind. Uh, it's not so much so often where our homes may be surrounded by 
physical threat, but there's a lot of emotional pressure put on our children and on our families and on our values. The way culture is weighing in on almost every issue uh, seems to be uh, contra Christian faith, uh, anything but the Christian faith. Uh, but I think this lends itself to the expression of love and grace. Mm -hmm. As you well know, Vince, and the rest of my colleagues, and of course, Francis does this so much in his uh, preaching and in his pastoral work and in his books, uh, we have no option. The option is really either to communicate the gospel effectively or lose the impact of the gospel. Yeah. The option for us, for us should just be one, and you and I well know so often questions are asked in a very uh, intimidating way or a counter-worldview way. And uh, it, the temptation is to fly off the handle and to fly, fight back and to resist. Uh, and we have to very pay. I, I, I tell my colleagues, uh, we're not answering a question, we are answering a questioner. And we remind ourselves that when you're answering a person, you literally and figuratively are putting their, their arms, are your arms around them. You have to draw them close. You have to make them feel you really care about them, that this is not just a mechanistic response you're giving, but your interest is that in their hearing, they hear how much you really care about them. Once upon a time, the questions were rather uh, theoretical. You could get away with theoretical answers, but a lot of questions today have very many practical implications. They are much more existentially driven and experientially dense. So our challenge is to make them realize that while our worldview may be different, the imperative of our worldview is to love those who oppose and love those who stand against us. So love uh, has to extend itself in the way you answer and love has to extend itself in the availability you have for the person to a continued dialogue on the same issue so that you can demonstrate that love over a period of patience and over a period of time. That's the way I would see it. Yeah, when I look at what, what is written in John, you know, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so uh, the love in that passage, anyway, is talking about this, mm -hmm. uh, about it's, it's, it's true. The, like the people in the world, if I confront any type of sin in their life, they would see that as unloving. There's, there's, nothing you, there's nothing we can do about that. That's just the way they have redefined love. But what we can control is in the church, mm -hmm. that we are honest with one another. But he says the way that they're going to know uh, that, that you're my disciples is, is this. And this is where we're losing it. You know, you talk about the other countries that are... You know, dividing in, in their, their different denominations and believers at each other's throats, which I've seen also. But gosh, are we known uh, for our love for one another? And what are, what are we doing right now to pursue this oneness that Christ wants of us? I, I said this at the luncheon earlier. Um, man, I love this man. Uh, the first time we met, I don't even remember when it was, but I remember just, maybe it wasn't the very first time, but I remember just one time because, okay, 
I'm not an apologist. Most of you guys know that. Okay. I'm just, <laughs> I've tried, you know, it's like my mind goes so far. And, and so I need brothers like this so badly. You know, it used to be back in the 90s when a pastor felt like he just had to be everything. I got to know more than everyone else. But, but now it's just like, okay, I just can't, I can't do it. All. I'm not going to be the best Bible teacher or the, the best scholar and the best counselor and the best leader and the best apologist. So I need this. But a lot of times when I, when I encounter someone who is a scholar, I get intimidated. I think a lot of us do. We just feel stupid, right? And and usually they'll tell us why we are stupid, you know? And and they'll like, yeah, I knew it, I knew it, and you just proved it to me. I already knew that. Tell me something I don't know. And so, but I remember, you know, one of the times, Robbie, you know, I, it might have been our first time meeting, and we were both going to speak in an event. And he just comes up to me and just hugs me and tells me how much he loves me and thanks God. I think he just started praying, God, it is such an honor to share the stage with this man. Francis, I'm so honored to be on the same And do you know what that does for a person who's already feeling insecure and, and everything else? And then him saying, no, I'm honored to be with you. Your contribution to the body of Christ, like a father, like love. It was so foreign to me to be loved by a scholar, seriously, and valued by one. Now, the fact that that feels so foreign is an indictment to where we're at. And I get it, and I want to be the first to apologize. Like, I can get so fired up about my thing that it may seem like I'm mad at you. I'm not, okay? I, I, I just get fired up about stuff, and I, I get bothered when I know how much people are suffering around the world. And I think about people who've never heard the gospel. And, and sometimes in my zeal for something, I forget that my number one call is to love you deeply like for this oneness and and the bible is saying when that happens in the church that's when the world's going to know that we're his disciples and that's what we need to fight for we've got a nice line of questions here live so let's go and focus there for a bit thank you for this uh, i come across an article the other day where 56 percent of Christians in America, in my generation and above, believe that Jesus is God. The, the, the other, the rest of it, they believe that Jesus existed historically, and they believe that he was a good moral teacher, but they didn't believe he was God. And then as I read further in the article, the generations below us, only about 38% believe that Jesus is God. They, they believed he existed historically, was a good moral teacher. And so when I, when I read that, I kind of look at where we are in America today and maybe why we are the way we are, because we're not seeing Jesus from who he is as God. And as a pastor, hopefully pastoring many more years here in the future, what am I going to do to convince the generations that are up and coming the divinity 
of Jesus Christ, which I think will help us get back to where we need to be as a country. And thank you. <laughs> if you just fix the country, Robbie, then we'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get the f the first the first the first statistic was did I hear 56? Okay, and now it's far below that. Uh, you know, uh, actually, even that surprises me. I wonder whether those who that higher percentage have thought through of what they're really saying. Uh, the divine son of God, uh, the authority that that title would give to him and uh, therefore the imperatives that necessarily follow. Uh, you know, the when people talk about him as being a good moral teacher, that's always the most puzzling description of all. You wonder whether they have, uh, I think, who, who was it? Um, was it... Uh, um, Becky, that said this morning about people who had never even read the gospel, but commenting on it and making, uh, taking implications from that. If they really believe, if even 56% at that time believed that Jesus was the Son of God, then we didn't do a very good job of uh, uh, spreading that message and defending that message. But if they talk about him being a good moral teacher then maybe his good moral teachings they actually consider bad uh, because they don't like to abide by the, uh, by the moral teachings that Jesus had. I would say that uh, it tells you and me more and more that in our preaching, one way or the other, we have to be bringing in the teachings of Jesus uh, and why those teachings are true and why he is indeed who he claims to be. So that apologetic becomes very important at a time like this. Oftentimes I find when you're, uh, for example, in the, prayer, in the presidential prayer breakfast and all, there's more and more of this move of having a pluralistic type of prayer and people from other places uh, uh, having equal voice at the prayer breakfast. Uh, <clears throat> which doesn't often uphold the Christian faith and Christian values. So I would say that it is important. <clears throat> My voice gave me trouble here. It is important for us. I think I saw some water here. Mm -hmm. Give me a moment. I'll do that for you, Rod. Thank you. It is important in our speaking, teaching, and writing to defend who Jesus is and why he is so. So oftentimes I will say to people when they are attacking Christendom or Christianity, and there's a lot to attack historically, I'll say, tell me what you think of Jesus. You know, what is it you really think of Jesus? And when they uh, start pondering that, it opens up an awful lot of possibilities for a genuine witness for the birth, life, death, and resurrection. It is interesting in Matthew 16 when Jesus has spoken to Peter, and Peter has finally recognized, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. As soon as he makes that recognition, the Bible says from that moment on, 
Jesus began to teach about the manner of death that he should die, and Peter resisted that. So he just accepted who Jesus was, then begins to challenge the path that Jesus was actually about to take. And Jesus, from taking that compliment, flesh and blood is not revealed that to you, but my Father is in heaven. And then he turns around and now says to him, get thee behind me, Satan. You're not minding the things of God, but you're minding the things of men. So even those who recognize his deity had a difficulty in understanding the total message and the mission. So you move on to the next chapter, okay? Uh, 17 there in Matthew, if I'm not mistaken. So at the end of 16, Jesus says there are some who are standing here who will not taste death till they see the glory of the Son of God coming in glory. And the very next chapter is a Mount of the Transfiguration. So he takes them up to the mountain, and Peter and James and John are stymied by this glimpse of a transfigured Lord and uh, Elijah and Moses. And after all of that exhilarating experience, Peter said, let's stay right here. Uh, Peter the fisherman wanted to become Peter the builder. He said, I'll build three tabernacles here uh, for all of you. And Jesus basically says, we've got to go down. That's work to be done. This Peter, this Peter who experienced probably one of the most exhilarating encounters the human eye could ever have accommodated. Imagine being present at the transfiguration of our Lord. He has seen this the most exhilarating thing. And to see Moses and Elijah at the same time, this Peter tells us in, uh, in, in his epistles to set apart Christ in your heart as Lord and always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you to anyone who asks and do that with gentleness and respect. He gives us the definitive statement of what apologetics is, meaning any experience has a shelf life. Because he says, for now we have the word of the prophets made more certain. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty, but now we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you'll do well to pay heed to it as to a light in a dark place. So all of the experiences were given a secondary place. The propositional truth of Christ was given the primary place because it is eternal, and the presentation of Christ as the centerpiece uh, in answering all of the questions became the mission, I think, of Peter himself. So I would say, as wonderful as our experiences are, we have to go back to the sure word of prophecy, for thy word abides forever. Expository preaching is the most powerful way to present who Jesus Christ really is. Uh, yeah, I obviously echo that. Uh, but I was going to say the same thing, but uh, um, I actually was thinking that the same line of, of like, we have to be so careful with uh, understanding what the Holy Spirit of God does, and only he has that power to do. You know, Peter's confession was like, okay, I didn't convince you of that. That came from heaven. That was a miracle that you believe that I am the son of God. So we just have to be so careful not to think. That's where apologetics has its place, and then there's a, there's a stopping point to it. And we go, oh, God, please, please, because it's the spirits. The natural man's not going to get that Jesus is the son of God. It just doesn't happen that way. Heaven has to reveal it, and so we're on our faces 
begging God, please, please. Because then when, when the Holy Spirit does that thing in your heart, then it's like my sheep will hear my voice. They'll listen to truth. They'll actually accept the truth of who Jesus is. Um, but on, on top of that, too, I think there's almost a, a casual attitude about Jesus because of um, maybe not necessarily false teaching in the church, but incomplete teaching in the church where we, we may overemphasize certain things about Christ because we want to get people interested in him. But in, in many ways, it, it can create like a casual attitude toward his deity. Um, you know, I was, I was thinking about in, in John 5, uh, verse 27, when, um, I'm sorry, 22, uh, the father judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Um, To just read the word of God to someone who's casual. Oh, yeah, maybe Jesus, maybe Jesus is that. It's like, okay, let me explain something. I grew up in a church where I just assumed, oh, Jesus is so sweet. And God the Father, oh, man, it's, it's hit or miss. Old Testament, right? And, and to read, no, no one read verses like this. But do you realize that you're, all judgment is from the Son? Really? I, I remember reading uh, Revelation 6 when uh, in verse 15, the kings of the earth and the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Like, I, it, was, it was me reading this book and going, whoa, 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 this is Jesus? Is it, he's the judge? The, whoever talks about the wrath of the Lamb, and yet here's everyone on the planet terrified, just wishing they could be hidden because they can't. It's, it's, it's because we're not being complete. And uh, that, that I think sometimes we can have a casual attitude about the deity of Christ and who Jesus is because we see him as so, you know, it's, it's almost like a side note to God. And absolutely, that's not the way the scriptures teach about him. And I, I'm still a guy who believes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it's when you fear Jesus, the coming judge, that suddenly you recognize Wow, but he's also full of mercy. Wait, how could that such a terrifying God of justice and wrath also be a God of mercy? And you just, your, your mind just starts spinning and you're in awe of him all over again. Thank you guys. It's so good. And as I was thinking about your question and what you guys have shared and, and Francis, just what you were saying about how apologetics can only go so far, but the Holy Spirit has to be the one that brings someone to believe in the divinity uh, of Christ. It's just so true. And I was, I was just, you know, you spoke about the younger generation. I just had in my mind a picture of this young woman who came to faith on a mission that we did. And there wasn't necessarily some big obstacle in her way. We asked her a few days later, we said, you know, wh why didn't you say yes to Jesus sooner? And she was very thoughtful about it. And she just sort of leaned back in her chair and she said, I think I just needed an invitation. 
and that line has always stuck with me. So we see those percentages dropping from 56% to 30-something percent. Let's turn the question around to ourselves as well, and let's make sure that the percentage of people we're actually inviting to believe in the divinity of Jesus is very, very high. Because if we believe Romans 1 and we believe that people genuinely know God, they do know him. That truth is just suppressed. It's in there. Every single person could be just one invitation away from giving their life to Christ. Let's make sure that the reason that percentage is so low, whatever the reason is, it's not because that's the percentage of people that we're inviting to believe that truth. Let's go to uh, another question live. Thank you. Um, Postmodernism seems to have produced a political system that's based on identity politics, which is based off of oppressed versus oppressor. And it seems that there's a large uh, part of our culture that views Christian faith as the oppressor. And our American church seems that in some ways it has compromised itself to avoid the label of being the oppressor. And my question is, how do we unify the church in our culture when our culture views our beliefs as oppressive without compromising our convictions? The last line again, please. When our culture doesn't. Um, how do we unify the church when our culture views our beliefs as oppressive without compromising our convictions? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting uh, when you look at the flow of uh, I'll, ta- I'll leave the closing words for you on this, Francis, so let me take the first part of it here. You're looking at, the word is epistemology in philosophy. The word epistemology means, you know, how do you, it, the, it is the subject of dealing with how do you know something is true. So if you're dealing with a historian, he has a different epistemological grid. A historian will look for various documentation in order to see whether his philosophy of history and his facts of history are right. You talk to a scientist, he or she works with a different series of tests for truth and so on. So whether it's a historian or a philosopher or a scientist, they have their own grid of truth testing. The Lord also tells us to test the truth, you know, to prove it to be right. Look at where secular philosophy has gone from rationalism, reason alone, to empiricism, science sort of being the ultimate arbiter of everything, to existentialism, your experience is the final test. So you move from rationalism to empiricism to existentialism, and then what was left? Postmodernism. Postmodernism repudiated all of those. No truth, no meaning, no certainty. And fascinatingly, by the way, all of these had their seedbeds in the continent, in, in Europe, coming from there, from the rationalistic view and so on. America had a different starting point, as did the United Kingdom. Their starting point was not reason. Their starting point was moral reasoning. This has been pointed out by Gertrude Himmelfarb in her book, Roads to Modernity, Professor Emeritus from Columbia University. So while Europe went from rationalism all the way down to postmodernism, America's starting point was moral reasoning. That's why we talked about being endowed by our creator with inalienable rights. The problem is now we have an America that deals with rights without ever defining what is right. 
We have no more the moral reasoning on which to arrive at all of this. So I think the last bastion of this that is left, as far as I'm concerned, you can go to scientific proofs, you can go to design proofs, you can go to so many other things. But the average person who really opens up their eyes and is listening to you recognizes there has to be a moral framework with which I do my thinking. What is it that makes me a person or a creature of value? So in that essential nature is the image of God. The image of God gives to me moral reasoning. We cannot communicate truth while compromising the implications of truth. So I would say how you communicate in this society is conviction with compassion. Convictions are very different to opinions. Opinions are something that you hold to. Convictions are those which hold you. You can change an opinion. One time you might like blue, next year you might like green. It's okay. But you cannot change your convictions about the sacredness of life or the sacredness of sexuality or love uh, and the, those that you put into this category. The challenge for the Christian is how to communicate conviction with compassion. My mother used to say, once you have cut off a person's nose, there's no point giving them a rose to smell. So uh, we have these issues come up on the university floor all the time. If they know you really care about them and they know you're authentic in what you are saying, you, can, you can't often go directly to the answer, but you can circle and form an arc and come into it. When Billy Graham was in his heyday, the invitation was given to the masses. But now we've got the hard picking to do. Not everybody is ready in that kind of setting. So we have to find ways of dialogical thinking, ways of rational discourse. And uh, I could say much more, but I don't want to eat up the clock here. Let me uh, give it to Francis to say the rest here. Yeah, let me complete your thoughts for you. Um. <laughs> I just love when he quotes people where I'm like, Gertrude Hemmelfarb or whatever. Like, wow. I look over at my daughter. She's just like laughing over there. My dad doesn't know what he's talking about. And uh, I do know the word epistemology, though. I do. You probably think I didn't. It comes from uh, the word pistis for faith. Thank you. Um, now, that's all I have to say. <laughs> Which worked no. very well, because we're almost out of time, but I would like to take one more question live. <laughs> Did you finish your thought? I do have a thought. Okay. Okay, all right. It's, it's, because, okay, here's, here's where I feel like I can contribute. Okay. You know, it's, it's this war. It's, it, I mean, you described it perfectly. It's, it, we, we, this whole idea of uh, we're all fighting for our rights. Um, and, and these are real things, real pain, real, real, real things that we feel. It's, it's so close to home. And, uh, and, I, and I love how the church has been so compassionate towards people. This has been a new move into this, um, this, this really trying to understand people, hear where they're coming from. But it really does come down to uh, this, this worldview at the core. Um, I've, been, I've been saying recently that I, I think one of the most important passages for our generation is Isaiah 55, um, starting in verse 8, where God says, my thoughts are not 
your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we, we've kind of... A lot of our reasoning comes from, and I, I read a lot of modern, well, not a lot, I've read a couple of modern books where they'll, they'll just say, well, why would God do this? I wouldn't do it. That's not the way I think. You know, well, I wouldn't flood the earth either. I wouldn't do this either. But it's, it's, it's coming from this, this, this mindset where you know it or not, that you believe your mind is the ultimate. And what God's saying is, I don't think like you. You know, so I read the Old Testament and so many times I go, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. Exactly. He says, there's a reason because you don't think like I do. And so in this compassion for people, we've lost this understanding that, yes, I feel, I feel you're hurt. But my biggest concern is you're, you're not seeing the center of it all. And you're not seeing this being who's so far beyond you that you have to answer to. And that's bigger than the hurt that you're currently facing. And his thoughts are so far beyond ours. And, and, and there needs to be a way in which the church no longer apologizes for the way that God thinks and acts and what he says is right and wrong. We should probably end. I want to say, you know, uh, I meant to say earlier to, to the gentleman who raised the question, secularism going through all of those isms that I mentioned ended up with postmodernism. What the mistake is there in each one of those cases, I want you to hear me carefully now, in grabbing the finger of one discipline, they thought they had grabbed the fist of reality. There is a place for rationalism. There is a place for the existentialist thought. There is a place for the empirical. There is a place for postmodernism. One thing in defense of postmodern thinking, they believe in community, mm. which is precisely what the church is really all about. It is only the Christian worldview that distributes its authority between all of these methods because they all have a place, but the fist of reality ultimately is precisely the reasoning of God himself who has the rational aspect, who has the existential aspect, who has the community aspect, who has the investigative empirical aspect. So while secularism was going to one ism at a time, God's probably sitting there saying, you know, yeah. you just got one little sliver of truth here. I've got all of these in my orb. And when you put it together, it has a cohesiveness of a composite and a worldview that fits together with all of these having their legitimate place. Yeah. That's good. That's some good epistemology. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one final question. We're just about out of time, um, but please do go ahead. Um, so I come from an uh, immigrant background uh, from Russian Ukrainian churches, and so what we have is uh, the older generation who sees America, unlike uh, the brothers here that were sharing, they see America as synonymous with the world. And then we have the younger generation who is seeing all of the uh, value in everything that American churches can bring, as I'm seeing here as well. And I'm kind of stuck in the middle, 
uh, between those generations. And so for me, the question is, how can I be a peacemaker between those two generations? Because that is uh, a problem that we are having in our churches is a separation of those generations, a misunderstanding between them. What better man to answer that question than with a man who's bridged the West and the East, Francis Chan. <laughs> Hear you. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, when you look at scripture, I, you know, sometimes I, I can almost get paralyzed by that, right? As you probably do, you go, how in the world am I going to bring this together? Um, because there's so many things that fight against that. And there'll be so much criticism as you try to pursue that and try to bring these two sides together. And this is, this is my opinion. Um, I think there's biblical basis on this. Um, I'm not sure I can defend it right now, but I, I almost feel like the answer to that is the reason why it's not coming together. You, you almost need to create it's it's almost like if we were the church right here just the three of us right now and i understand this bigger problem is out there but what i'm called to do is to love you vince like in a way that the world is like how could francis sacrifice that much for that guy and 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 for you to love me in that same way and for us i understand there's big problems out there, but right now the three of us Let's just have this insane bond. Like Christ says, we could be perfectly one. And when we do that, like that's where the supernatural begins to happen. And God does things that, that we don't even understand. They don't even make sense logically, but scripture says it'll happen. That when we become perfectly one, then the world will know. So there's something about taking our eyes off of these big giant problems and for the church to really be such an incredible church that then everyone starts looking to this one focal point of this unified church. It, and, and, and it's almost like as, as we jump to these other ends, which I, we still need to try it, you know? Um, the problem is we're not building that base that everyone's looking at going, wow, that's amazing, and really being that light that attracts people. And so I, I kind of, I don't know if that answers your question, but my approach from my understanding of scripture is that some of these things are just over our heads that are such extreme difficult things. Um, but the core of the problem is the church is not being that beautiful bride that Christ wanted it to be. And so we start with those who, who get it at that point and let's just build on that and i feel like the fringes just start growing further and further um, through that attraction to something so beautiful well praise god for all that's been shared and let's say thank you to ravi and francis